I'm Lily. I'm Lorraine. And we're, and we're caffeinated, caffeinated on, on the train. train. Hey. Welcome back. <laughs> how's it going, everybody? You can't answer that. How, how's it going, Lorraine? It's, it's going pretty well. Good, it's, good. It's almost the end of the semester, and yeah. I am very excited for that. Me too, me too. This week for me is going to be... With it, it has its challenges. It's not going to be like a, an easy week or an uneventful week, but might as well finish that way, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and then it's over. Just one more, one more, one more round of this. Are you doing anything exciting on the break, Lily? I sure am. I'm going to Buenos Aires for the break. I'm really excited. Um, I'm doing a like kind of informal research collection, data collection while I'm there, but also just enjoying it because I really miss it. So that, um, I'm also, I've been applying, I haven't really mentioned this to you, but I'm involved in this like very long and, and complex, I would say, application pro- process. And this week I also have another interview for my, uh, pro- my application to study in Mexico. Um, so that's another thing that's kind of on the horizon that I'm working on. Um, yeah, I don't know who's interviewing me, but I got an email saying that I have a Spanish interview. So That's exciting. <laughs> so, yeah, exciting. That's one word for it. I mean, I think it's, uh, you know, <laughs> I've kind of, like, just canceled my entire, like, Spanish engagement for the last month since I had this um, very... One of the things that happened while we weren't um, recording episodes was that I had this... Um, Spanish placement exam, very momentous, intense, intense day for me. Um, one, one of the several like iterations of this application process. And ever since then, I had been preparing, I'd been worrying, mostly worrying, worrying more than preparing, but preparing for five months I was taking Spanish class, which was exhausting um, in itself. And pretty much immediately after, I had a, one class after I finished my interview or my, my exam. And during it, I just like refused it. There was a point where I was like trying to tell a story and I was just like, no, I, I'm done. Like, <laughs> I refuse to continue speaking Spanish. And pretty much ever since then, I, I've stuck with that. So we'll see how this last uh, interview goes. But I'm sure it's yeah. going to go really, really well. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. Good luck. Yeah, but you know, what can I do at this point? So there's that. Um, but yeah, how's your week been otherwise? Uh, my week has been good. Um, I have spent some time this week writing a very exciting paper. Tell us, tell us. It's it's very exciting because it's of one of my favorite genres of paper, which is papers about things I really hate. You do, you do really like that actually. That's I, like a that's a known famously. Famously, this is it's the energy that I feel I inspired in you when you were writing that paper about blast. Yeah, you know, every once in a while that paper still comes up because I think I've like um, navigated it there so many times. Now, whenever I want to open a new doc, it always starts me there. And I just saw it today and I was like, ah, my magnum opus. <laughs> the <laughs> best thing I've ever written. Now. Yeah. <laughs> there it is, my baby. <laughs> anyway. I, I don't necessarily know how I would place the book about which I was writing this paper in comparison to Blast in my estimation. I'm, I hate them both with deep... Passion, complex, complex. Rage. I feel, and I feel a sense of morbid and delightful fascination with By, both of them. Yeah, 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 yeah. I know what you mean. You just can't turn away. Like, there's just, you just have so many questions. Like, so much to unpack. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I know what you mean. I actually, I really do personally know deeply what you mean. <laughs> I am deeply aware of how much you know. <laughs> so I, right yeah. before, right before us recording this podcast, I was at a cafe writing about this book that I hate so much, which is Narrow Road to the Deep North by Richard Flanagan. You can put it down and hate read it, maybe, if you... I, I do, in fact, deeply recommend this. Really? As a hate read. As a hate read. It's... Everybody needs a good hate read sometimes, you know, like... It blows my mind how bad it is, and that it won the Booker Prize. Makes me question the Booker Prize, to it, be honest. Rightly, it should. about this. You know, if, if there was no other reason to question the Booker Prize, and there are many reasons to question the Booker <laughs> Prize, this <laughs> would be enough. Enough. I think, this isn't part of my paper, but I think one of the, the really shocking things about it is, you know those Twitter threads that are like, how men write women? Yeah. Where they yeah. talk, like... She she breasted boobily yeah. on the stairs. He literally yeah. writes like that. Oh, the way he writes his female characters, it's staggering. Oh man. Yeah. My, yeah, what are they doing? This man. This guy in particular. This guy, Richard. This guy, Richard. What's up? Come on. So that's what I've been that's doing. That's what you've been up to. I also today I'm writing a paper for a class. I mean I was I was so close to not writing it at all, if you remember. Um, as of, I think, what, like two days ago, I was like, maybe I, I just, I'm not going to even write this paper at all. But I've been taking a class that, to be honest, I really don't like. It's kind of hard for me to admit that, like, this class just, like, may not be my forte, and that's okay. Like, the kind of style, it's a, it's like a very deep, to me, like, very deep humanities. It's like a, it's very much like a history course. Like, it's just, it's not really my... I feel it's out of my comfort zone, but like not in a way that's been um, fulfilling or, or like um, rewarding, to be honest. I think the opposite, and mainly it's because of, I, I just really um, clash with the professor. Like his style and like what I'm looking for in my like intellectual engagement with a professor is just, it's bad. So anyway, I'm writing a paper for that class, and I think one of the biggest hurdles is that I just don't want to. Like I just really don't want to think or like engage my mind or my my attention to this class um so i've been kind of dreading it but i'm i'm leaving and um to go to argentina and i, I need to finish the paper before i go because also the professor is american and doesn't understand that like we don't have real deadlines here <laughs> he doesn't get it so he just gave us an arbitrary deadline which is not i mean in a way it's okay like because it's like, sometimes it's it's good to have someone just put their foot down and say, like, this is when this is due, and if you don't do it, then, like, just don't bother. Mm-hmm. I mean, I it's kind of... I, I wouldn't wanted to finish it anyway before I left. So, like, that's not the worst part, but um, I've been having to just do it, basically. There's no... there's It's one of those times where there's procrastination or excuses. Like, there's just no... They don't fit anywhere in this process. So, today, I went to the library. It's Sunday, by the way, and... I went to all the way to the Dalem to that that dystopian library. The brain shaped. The brain shaped dystopian library, and objectively the worst library. Objectively the worst library, like uh, on every several all the counts that you can, yeah. Except subject matter. Except sub yeah. Except subject matter. There's a, there's a lot of books in there. Like <laughs> that's a good, but they yeah. are so poorly uh, organized. organized. Zero sense. I uh, yeah. So you you can't yeah. even get at them. So yeah, you can't even get at them. They're there. And that's one of the reasons it feels so dystopian. Mm-hmm. Um. So anyway, went to the library, and 
I, I also, I didn't sleep well last night. I was just like really not in the mood. I drank a lot of coffee before I left. I, I arrived later than I wanted to. I was just, it, they didn't get off to a good start, but suddenly I, I sat down and like my tired, like really, I don't know what the word is. Just the self that just didn't want to be there and didn't want to do this at all. Like something came through and I just so determinedly stayed there for five hours. I didn't get up. Said maybe wants to pee, but otherwise didn't get up, didn't look at my phone, didn't navigate to any other websites. I didn't do anything but write the paper for five hours. And I'm pretty proud of that because, yeah, I mean, it really came out of like, I don't know where that, what place that came out of, except maybe just like the true drive and determination of never wanting to think about it again. <laughs> don't underestimate that <laughs> as a source of motivation. This, dear listener, is what you will get if you sign up for the <laughs> 10 days. Take thesis writing, 100%. <laughs> the only way that you're going to be allowed to get out of there is if you just write thesis. Exactly. So, <laughs> that's, that's how it works. That's the secret. Boy, let me tell you, it's going to be even more dystopian in the yeah. room where it's being written. 100%. You're not even going to be able to get up to pee. Mm-mm. Nope. <laughs> There won't be any internet. You you can't look at any any other websites. Oh no no, there will be internet, but every fun website is blocked. You yeah yeah. All the websites that Lorraine decides what's allowed. Yes. <laughs> considering Lorraine's own web history, um, <laughs> it's gonna be dystopian for you probably. Deeply disturbing. Depends on what you research. Yeah yeah. Well you know that's that, they have that choice, so you better choose wisely. <laughs> um, it's ten days. You're going to be in there for 10 days. So how are you feeling about... Um, yeah, so I'm at a point now, the paper is uh, significantly longer than it needs to be. I think we've been talking about this. I mean, you can let us know on the social media platform of your choice what you think about this. But I'm feeling a bit uneasy because basically the assignment is something that I've never done before. It's a, an interpretive essay on um, something, uh, something that we read in class and um, not a research paper. So it's, it's pretty different, the approach. I mean, it's really just doing a very, very close read and then putting it in your own words, essentially. And um, which is, it's, not, it's not a bad like, um, exercise, to be honest. It's, it's, it's different. But at um, the same time, my concern is that a lot of the paper has been me quoting like pretty large chunks of text. Um, and I'm not sure. To me, it feels like that's cheating a bit or like not really... The point, but at the same time, like, to what extent is it worth it to, like, write things in my own words just for the sake of doing that when, like, obviously this dude who wrote the chapter, like, wrote it well in his own words. So, so I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Lorraine doesn't seem to be too worried about that, but I'm a little bit worried about that. I was just thinking just now as you were saying this, that Mm -hmm. this um, kind of interpretive paper where you don't really do much or even necessarily any secondary research and just look at the text is something I did a lot in my bachelor's degree. Mm. I think that this is a kind of standby of like literature studies bachelor degrees. Yeah, yeah. It seems like a bit like he's, I don't know, that's another topic that he's, yeah, anyway. (laughs) But therefore, I consider myself an expert and can say that as long as like everything that you quote is related to your argument and you take out all of the irrelevant bits with ellipses, Mm. Mm. There's, there's no point, or there's no point in, like, 
trying to just cut put it down. Or, or it's just yeah, for the sake of no, you don't want to paraphrase things just to be paraphrasing them. Yeah, exactly. Because then you lose all of like the specificity of language. And... Yeah, exactly. And there's certain times where he's outlining like what he means when he talks about the, the chapters largely on modernity, and like I think it's important that he's referring to his own. Um, specific kind of tenets of what he means by modernity, what he means when he says, and I, yeah, I don't really want to tamper with that. I mean, I think tomorrow, I, I needed to, after five hours of doing it, like, get a good night's sleep. Tomorrow's task, because it's, like it's like a blobby draft right now, and so I think tomorrow, when I look at it with fresh eyes, I'll be able to tell more, but it's good to know if you, if you don't think that's a problem. Mm -hmm. um, stay tuned. Um, I will be sure to update you at some point about... <laughs> Although the next time we record is probably going to be after you get back. And to be honest, I'm, I hope never to think about this again. So, so actually... This is, this is the last time you're going to hear about it. Sorry, dear listener. <laughs> In fact, I'm thinking about emailing the professor like with the paper and being like, just don't don't ever talk to me again. <laughs> I don't want to hear from you. Um, famously, he doesn't reply to emails. I really, I'm not a fan of this guy, so uh, yeah. Anyway... It's like worse worse than your crush not answering your texts is your professor not replying to your emails. Let me tell you. Unless of For course. me just as likely, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest. But uh yeah. Yeah, I sent this professor a poem that I read in another class that I thought would be relevant. A poem, like that's vulnerable. I sent him a poem and he didn't answer. So, Lily, I'm afraid that may have been your mistake. Yeah. <laughs> Sending your professor's poetry, you know. No. I mean, we've all been there, but... We've all been there. It wasn't a romantic poem. It was about race. <laughs> <laughs> okay? It was about... It was about injustice and racism. <laughs> anyway, so that's what I... That's what I am currently dealing with. Um, hopefully, I finish it really soon um and yeah sometimes that's how how it goes you're doing something that you really don't want to be doing and the only motive you have is that you just want to stop doing it and the only way that you can stop doing it is by doing it now <laughs> i think there's something really powerful about that and something much more satisfying sometimes than giving up yeah 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 it's really like powering through a situation like this and then not having to do a situation like it again yeah true i'm sure i'll be like i already feel like relatively proud of myself that i'm like doing something i really don't want to do mm -hmm. and i'm doing it anyway and like despite the kind of discomfort and despite the fact that like i probably won't or i shouldn't expect like any kind of gratifying end product except for what i personally um choose to take from it mm. rather than like oh i'm gonna do this and i'm gonna get a one on this paper or like the professor's going to say that i did a good job or something like and like <laughs> this this guy seems like such a jerk he's who a cares jerk. whether he says you did a it's good very job true. he won't like he, no matter no i could i could submit like the next the next best I don't know. We don't really have a point of no, reference here. We don't really have a point of reference here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> let us know on the social media platform of your choice. What is the best academic essay that... We could be comparing this example to right now. Go. Anyway, um, he, he wouldn't know it if he saw it because he's not looking for good. He's looking for something that he can assert his ego over. Um, yeah, so moving on. <laughs> you know, in some ways, this, um... It's a good segue. 
Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't say it's like the best segue ever. But, <laughs> but we're going to, we're doing it live. We're we segueing. Yeah. <laughs> we are on Sharp the segue. Turn. Yeah. <laughs> Turns out we're actually always on a segue when we're recording. <laughs> we changed the name to Caffeinated on the segue. segue. So the, the theme for this week is in fact, in some ways, about professors and senior academics being a little disappointing yeah being all talk no real action oftentimes their talk i think is bolstered by or the thing that's the wind in their sails is that they're it seems like they're doing important work it seems like they're talking about things that are are towards or a contribution towards social progress and this class is a good example of that um for sure um and a lot of a lot of humanities, a lot of social sciences are this way, where the kind of like legitimacy that's like whether it's spoken or unspoken, the kind of legitimacy around the engagement is that like these things are, um, dare I say, um, inclined towards or associated or conflated with activism. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, the the um, theme of this episode is that your academia is not activism, which is a tough pill to swallow for some of us. Um, I'm referring to myself here. <laughs> yes, to be clear, out of the two of us, you were the one for whom this is a tough pill to swallow. Yeah, you're like, well, yeah. I... <laughs> you, but it's good. Like I, I, Because the thing is, I will say that I think this has contributed to a lot of burnout. Mm-hmm. And I think that I, I admire lately, like when I'm thinking about this and when I'm coming to terms with this, like... Um, that I think the way that you approach academia is more has a, a deeper resiliency to it because you're not like prescribing onto it this expectation. I feel that academia is in some ways a very frivolous pursuit, which is not to say that it's a bad pursuit. The creation of many entertainment products is a frivolous pursuit, and yet we never say, or I never hear anyone say, we need to shut down Hollywood or the publishing industry. I think sometimes we just need to accept that the work we're doing is an entertainment product for people who are in universities. I actually, I remember you told me this a long time ago. One of our early, early, remember this? Yes. Yeah, we went to that German restaurant. Do you remember? Around Christmas time. Yes. And yeah. you had pumpkin soup. Yeah, exactly. I was thinking about the pumpkin soup as I was saying this. In Dallum. Yeah, exactly. exactly. It was right exactly. before a modernist class. Before, yeah, yeah, precisely. I'm glad you're here with me. We're, yeah. we're, some, we're, we're we time traveled there for a second. Trip down memory lane. We're, we're back now, but for a second there we were. <laughs> um, yeah, but I remember you, when you told me that, and I think, I think that it's um, it really stuck with me because I think that it's true. I think... Not only is there this expectation from, you know, young, young, hopeful, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed versions of me, but there's also, like, uh, I think this unfair expectation sometimes is placed on academia to be, to be, for it to be legitimate, it must also be, um, yeah, like, uh, some form of activism or, yeah, and I think that's, yeah, essentially I think that it's a dead end on both counts in that respect because on my, my personal experience with this is that um, as you... No, if you've been listening, it would be weird, I guess, if you started on episode 11. It could happen, but... Um, you never know. Also, I think this is episode 12. Bleep. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, well, whatever episode this is, um, the previous episode, as if you listened to it, um, was about my current kind of state of disillusionment with processes and um, structures in academia. But one of them, one of the things that 
is actually where this um, part of the conversation that something that came out of that was um, that it seems to me that like academics who are people that I maybe had looked up to um, who's who are trained in and like make a career out of um, being um, good critical thinkers um, able to engage with current issues of our time and very good at articulating them that there seems to be a massive gulf or blind spot or um, uh, inefficacy in the form of action on the same part of these people and how that has been making me think um, you know I'm here because largely because I, I see academia as a viable career option or saw academia I'm, that's a, another episode I'm, I'm thinking about this but um, as a viable career option for someone who cares and who wants to be involved in academia if only for the at the very least because um, I think that it's not incompatible with these other aims or other forms of social activism it's a place that I think is relatively tolerant of freedom of thought and um, I mean as opposed to I don't know working in other sectors or working in a corporation or something where I'm not able to be my full intellectual self and, and say the things that I think. Um, and so in that respect, um, I've been interested in pursuing a career in academia, but at the same time, I've seen the kind of incompetency towards action, even within the university structure, mm-hmm. on the part of these people that I looked up to in this vein. And it's made me think, yeah, um, what, are, what are we doing? What, what, is, what is the end game here? What's, what role is it appropriate to expect academia to play in? Because I also admit that maybe I need to adjust my expectations. Mm-hmm. And I would, I would say that what academia is very good at is articulating problems. Mm. I think that's something that academia really adds to conversations. However, articulating a problem is a million miles away from finding a solution to that problem and a million more from enacting that solution. And the problem is where people come up with an articulation of a problem and then stop because they've already done all this work. And then it's, it's taken like that's the same as if they had come up with a solution or enacted the solution. Very, very true, and, and 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 to kind of give feel this sense of like giving yourself a pat on the back because mm-hmm. you've thought of a problem and then tapped out of. Um, yeah, I, I really agree with that. And as we were saying, I think it's important to point out that this isn't a um, zero sum question that um, we should stop engaging in social issues within the the realm of academia or having a round table about horrible suffering that's going on elsewhere doesn't have um, um, a constructive place within society. Um, but it is a, it definitely is a kind of moral conundrum that I've been dealing with. Um, a lot of my um, engagement this semester has been specifically about um, how to write or capture the experience of subaltern populations, um, specifically in terms of um, the bo- like borders and uh, migrant people or stateless people, if you will. Mm-hmm. And... Time and again, I find myself feeling uncomfortable or unsure of my role in that because I'm not one of these people. And how do I um, approach being in a space where, you know, because I think the idea also is people who are able to, and we have other friends who have spoken about this with, um, who have their own experiences of subalterity or marginalization that 
Um, academia is a, is a space of, I, I don't like using this word, but of privilege in the sense that marginalized people don't necessarily have the freedom to either be there or to out themselves as marginalized members of marginalized groups. Mm -hmm. So that also complicates this whole question of how do we engage in this in a, in a way that's um, both doing what academia can do while also um, maybe knowing its place mm -hmm. in, in some respect. And I think that there maybe isn't a clear answer to that, but it's definitely something that there needs to be a level of humility and a level of accountability around, at the very least, a level of self-reflection if this is the form of academia that you're interested in pursuing, um, but also a, a clear understanding of the limitations, if nothing else, of that task and using academia to that end. I think humility is a really good word for what is necessary in this kind of conversation. Mm. Um, because I would, I would never say that this kind of conversation shouldn't be had where a bunch of academics sit at a round table and discuss a horrible event. But making a lot of space for people who have experiences in that, that that's the best thing we can do. And that requires a level of humility that I think academia doesn't necessarily reward mm. um, because there's, there's this certain tendency towards puffing yourself up right as yeah. being like super intellectual it's not really a place that mm. is the friendliest towards being humble very even, true very, even just true. the fact that it's like such a um highly competitive job market yeah so you have to advocate for yourself and say how great you are if you want to be successful yeah and i think there's kind of yeah egomania that's also uh, a trope that's mm. not inaccurate of academia or <laughs> people who advance uh into academia i mean yeah 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 again it's this question of how how do we because as we've talked about in the previous episode as well i think a lot of the kind of structures within which academia exists are are not also geared towards um you know, they oftentimes reflect hegemonic structures from the rest of society. Academia, as we've established, is not actually immune from this, the issues that exist in the rest of society. So how do we have this kind of transformative vision or um, engagement in these same spaces that are also the same as other, other industries, other sectors of society that are also problematic too? So... Yeah, it's definitely a question. I'm I'm thinking about it a lot. I'm I'm it's definitely shaping um, what I my next steps are or, or what I'm interested in doing. I have um, a couple of ideas, but it's definitely been something that has probably been it's been one of the biggest challenges to how I've engaged with academia this semester. Um, not necessarily as a bad thing, but. Yeah, yeah. You had some other things, I think, that you wanted to bring up in this respect. Yeah. I don't know how well this is a good segue, but I invite you to do so now. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> um, I think one of the things that I would, I would like to say is that there are absolutely academics out there who are activists as well. And I've had the, the privilege of knowing one this semester. Wow, um, a real-life academic activist. A real-life, <laughs> someone who I'm, I'm just really impressed with how well she's handling the, f the fallout that comes with being an activist. Because if, if you're doing activism right, there should probably be some fallout. Because if there's not, then you're probably not doing yeah, very much. Yeah, you're not challenging much if you're not, yeah. No. <laughs> um, and I am speaking, of course, of Medita Irming 
who has been teaching the course Porn in the USA. Porn in the USA. <laughs> there should be like an associated song with that or something, you know? Like, for, for several... You no? Know? At several uh, occasions... Someone has done like a little thing, little uh, Bruce Springsteen. Yeah, we could, we could. You, you know how to do this now. Put in song. He's actually saying porn. If you didn't know, um, <laughs> yeah. What do they call him? The Bruce Springsteen. Um, no offense, but I don't expect you to know this. <laughs> I don't. I don't. <laughs> the boss. The boss. He's actually talking. I think it is the boss. Um, one day I'm gonna go on Jeopardy, and I'm gonna I'm gonna do a good job on Jeopardy, and I'm pretty sure that's what they call him. But I'm gonna look it up, and if it's wrong, you're gonna edit this one, and you're gonna take this out. <laughs> but I'm pretty sure that's what he's called. Anyway, if it's wrong, I'll just bleep out what you said. That I thought it was. Yes. Perfect. Excellent. <laughs> or well, like. In, edit myself in doing a really impression <laughs> yeah exactly it's, yeah so you'll never know if i made what my mistake was we don't make mistakes we're just like dictators like you know <laughs> we just we just edit out anything that shows any sign of uh, fallibility you know boy i've never heard anything more accurate <laughs> truly truly anyways anyway <laughs> speaking of dictators sexy dictators porn studies we're back on track <laughs> <laughs> Medita is a porn studies scholar. She's currently doing her PhD on porn. And her course that she's guest lecturing at JFKI here in Berlin has received a lot of very, very negative attention from what some might call the Nazis. (laughs) And by negative attention, I mean that she is... um, publicly harassed in a very uh powerful way online there's like a lot of if you if you look at her twitter account there's a lot of drama um of other people saying how awful she is for studying porn and also one time the afd got up in parliament and said how terrible it was that the humboldt university was putting on a course about porn perfect excellent and fyi to be clear (laughs) That was a mistake. Humboldt is not <laughs> putting on a course about porn. There's also there's also a AFD poster that says um, porn studies don't create prosperity, which is not untrue, but yeah, but not for the reasons that they think. No. <laughs> we're all poor because we're academics. That's what we're. That's what it, <laughs> exactly. That's just about it. Yeah, it could be any studies, really. <laughs> really, yeah, and uh, unlike other forms of academia. Porn creates prosperity. Yeah, 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 yeah. Just, you can't argue with that. Undeniably. Um, so I, I have been so impressed this semester by the hit that Medita has taken in dealing with what it turns out are actually a lot of people who hold um, very negative views about porn and sex work and who have taken it upon themselves to attack her because of her relationship as a porn scholar too. I have some questions for myself and also for the listeners mm-hmm. um, that I was wondering when I saw her lecture. Um, first of all, like, do you know a little bit about her trajectory of like how she started? Um... Yeah, I mean, I'm just first of all, like, for people who don't know about this as much as you do. Um, <laughs> like, so everyone. What, what what exactly are her like um, 
beliefs or like what makes her porn studies activism or like can you explain that more like why um what is it she feels so strongly about in this that that people have such a problem with well one of the really interesting things is that actually she's not saying anything that off the wall all all she has ever really said as a (laughs) core theme is that maybe we should research porn yeah, okay. and that's that's enough apparently that people are freaking out. Yeah, so much. Um, some of her other things are that she she's doing her PhD dissertation on um, fear mongering around porn addiction. Mm, right, right. Which right, was also right. what her lecture, her public lecture, was about, but not what the corn, not what the corn, <laughs> not what the course corn, was about. Corn, yeah. <laughs> um, this whole time, I think that we're actually talking about people hating her for studying corn. <laughs> <laughs> there's an alternate universe where, yeah there's an alternate universe where that is what we're talking about been attacked by rabid anti-corn activists <laughs> they hate corn hate corn probably yeah, probably but it's it's just that she wants to legitimize porn as a thing that you can talk about publicly mm. that's really all of it and i think that as with many a good activist she doesn't consider herself an active activist. She considers herself someone who believes a very clear, simple thing, which is that we should work on destigmatizing sex. And it's everyone else who has the problem with it. I think that's really, really well said and a good kind of um, ode to what she's doing. Because mm. that actually, now that you say that, that seems, from my understanding, that does seem to be pretty much it. From yeah. What I've gotten from what she's doing, but you obviously know a lot more about it than me. And she's, she is, I feel quite good at that humility that we were talking about. Yeah. Um, especially for someone who's so early in her career, because as I said, she's she's a PhD candidate, so she's really like a young scholar, um, and in a a weedy field as as one might say as uh, foremost porn scholar Linda Williams said once um, <laughs> she I think works really hard at m- maintaining humbleness around what she does mm. and not not elevating herself as an academic who studies porn above like the people who her research is about really. right 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 that makes a lot of sense um also for for the dear listener how do you know her like what is your engagement with her well um funny story i follow a lot of porn scholars on twitter obviously um and way back this past summer one of them retweeted her mm-hmm. um post saying that she was going to be teaching a course in Berlin. Ironically, the same post that got picked up by the AFD and started the whole public uh, shitstorm, as she puts it, about how evil it is that the Free University of Berlin is putting on a porn class. Rather Humboldt. Right, right. (laughs) The Humboldt is putting on a porn class. Um, Nice work. So so I just saw this tweet and I I was so excited because I wanted to go to a porn class because I do porn studies. And then I was having a lovely dinner with you, dear Lily, and Dasam, and talking about this and you two very strongly and 
wisely encouraged me to email her asking if she would like a teaching assistant. And there you have it. And there you have it. I, I did indeed. And it was a very good thing that I did because um, I otherwise I wouldn't have been able to take the course for credit because mm -hmm. it was a JFKI course for bachelor students and I am an English student who is doing a master's degree. Um, and if I hadn't asked to be a TA or offered to be a TA, I would not have been allowed in the course because they were worried about the Nazis attacking Famously. Us. There was a bouncer. There the was a bouncer. You uh, saw the bouncer. Was a, yeah, they had a, this guy, a security guard. They ID'd everybody mm -hmm. who wanted to get in. How has the class been? Like, what is, have you, can you give us like um, some, because I think a lot of people are, because of, as we said, it's so stigmatized. Like, what are some general kinds of themes or topics that are discussed in a porn class? Like, there's always, everyone's always making jokes. Like, do you just watch porn? Like, <laughs> I mean. I would say maybe, maybe like, 20% of the time in class is spent watching porn. Oh, really? Um, okay, really? You guys are really watching porn in there? Yes. <laughs> Which, you know, it's... It I famously have never seen porn. Did you know that? I've never really? seen porn. No. How are, we, how are we such good friends? I don't know. At this point, I'm... It's like how I, um, I only have my ears pierced. I don't know how many tattoos or other piercings. It's just like one of those things, like... My my line in the sand, my uniqueness is just that I've just never seen it. And at this point, I'm happy with that. Not even for like posterity. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know why people is that why people watch porn is for posterity. Some kinds of porn, <laughs> you know, cultural porn. Yeah, the nostalgia. <laughs> I know what I said. <laughs> Leave. <laughs> um, Haven't I ever sent you porn? No, never sent me porn. I I mean, like, like maybe in, like, an art exhibition once, I, like, maybe saw porn. But, yeah, I've never seen porn, and I'm, like, as I say, I feel like that's, like, my unique thing at this point is that I've just never seen it. And, yeah, I mean, this is maybe a topic for another time, but... <laughs> Wow, yeah. that's a, this is a whole. This is a, this is the whole topic. We're gonna probably have this conversation after you're not listening anymore. Sorry, that's Patreon material. Oh man, Patreon material is me talking about how I've never seen porn in more detail, and me being just absolutely baffled. Yeah, <laughs> and maybe talking about her seeing porn in more detail. If you're lucky, it depends on the, the the level of Patreon that you're willing to pay for. Yes, yeah. So, sign up for our Patreon. <laughs> anyway, um, completely sidetracked by that. I, well, it makes sense for us to watch um, porn in class because we don't necessarily have access to it by ourselves because, you know, it would be behind paywalls. And unlike with um, novels, for example, our library is not likely to carry it. Yeah. Um, so some time does have to be spent. Watching porn together. Do you guys just watch porn together as a class? Yes. With our, like, with our notebooks in front of us. Just like, yeah. What kind of things are you looking out for? Um, things like, for example, what sort of representations there are of mm. different bodies, um, mm. that, that would be like a really classic one. Um, it is, it's, it's a, very, yeah, post, I feel there's a lot of postmodern discourse you can take. They love, they love the body. In the they do love the body. The material turn and porn mm. would be a really good combo. In, in a anyway. lot of ways, I imagine it's basically exactly like what you would look at in any other film studies yeah. course. You yeah, know, of course. We can talk about the framing, the uh, musical choices. Man, the soundscapes music. of porn. I've heard that there's sometimes good music in porn. I, I know some people who have shazammed 
some good songs out of porn. That's something I kind of do wish that I, I, I like music. That's what you're missing. Just, I watch porn for the music. <laughs> <laughs> Famously. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Um, but, like, there are, there are really interesting things in terms of what kind of sounds end up in porn. Um, right. And then also, like, the way in which porn is advertised, for example. Mm. Um, so at one point we just, we looked at like a bunch of covers for porn movies that mm-hmm. are in like a specific genre and talked about how they were selling themselves. Um, we've also talked about anti-porn movements, mm. of course. Probably a lot there in this class too. Like a lot to go base that off of. Yeah. you told me. Yeah. Um, and we, we watched a TED talk by a very significant anti-porn activist, which was fascinating. And then we read... Um, I must have texted you when I was reading this, or I must have texted you about this. Um, we read the, the introduction of this book, um, by Andrea Dworkin, who's like... Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, of course, in yeah, her, yeah. Yeah, and I, like, I screwed up with the reading. I read only the first half oh, of yeah, it. Oh, yeah, of course. And then the second half... Was? Was <laughs> <laughs> about... I can't believe that happened to you. That would, it must have been such like a conundrum for you. I was sitting there being uh, like, what, what's everyone talking about? And why am I not talking about this? <laughs> not that you needed to have read that, that particular reading to have something to say. No. But. <laughs> they, they oddly came up a couple of times. That wasn't the only time. Also, so, when we were talking about gay porn. Well, I mean, we know a thing or two. Those things tend to go hand in hand, don't they? Or, Do they? Or them. <laughs> <laughs> This is <laughs> and I feel like we've now gotten very off track about academia and activism, but I think that I think they're probably here for it. You know, I think so, I, too. so I, I, I don't think... feel too badly about it. It's really good for bleeping, talking about porn and the p- porn studies. True for bleeps, it's good for the bleeps. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna bleep this so thoroughly that we don't even have to mark it as explicit. Yeah, 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 yeah. definitely implicit. It's implicit, <laughs> heavily implied. Um, yeah, <laughs> exactly. The bleeps, yeah, heavily. Yeah. So anyway, um, shall we, I don't know, where do you want to, how do you, where, where do we go? Where do we go from here? I feel like I've actually said all my key points. They were all about porn. <laughs> So, um, anyway, good work that she's doing. It is, and I wish her all the best. I know that because she's had a really rough time of it because uh, having the Nazis after you is stressful. Yeah, as I one would imagine. One would imagine. Famously stressful. Famously. And, you know, I'm being glib about it, but actually it's very scary. Yeah. Yeah, um, I know some of the things that it's, it's serious, actually. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah, and I mean, in, in terms of... Um, being an activist in academia, I wonder if there's any closing points we can extrapolate from what she's doing. I mean, be her humility is and and, and mm-hmm. letting the truth of what she believes speak through her work. I think in itself it seems to be uh, the her main point of activism Absolutely. here or way of engaging with with ac- activism. I would also say that. Um... That her form of activism is something that academia is actually more helpful with, which is that it's about opening conversations. Mm, yeah, it's going to say like a discursive space. Exactly. And so that is potentially a form of activism that suits academia better than, for example, like dealing with an acute military crisis. Right. Yes. Um, but that even even being relatively well suited, it's 
a, a risk if you're yeah. going to be yeah. an academic and an activist. And if you want the points for being an activist, you're going to have to take Endure on that some, risk. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, one of the other things I wanted to say, which I think this is a good foil, is, I, um, again, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed Lily, you know, bachelor's Lily. Um, I'm just thinking, you know, like we have these examples, there's Angela Davis, there's Noam Chomsky, there's all the critical theorists um, and philosophers, I think, of the post-World War II era. And you see these people and they seem so glamorous, or Mm -hmm. Judith Butler as well, very glamorous. The most glamorous, (laughs) actually, though. Famously glamorous. Um, but yeah, you, you, you hear all these figures who have done work that is very academic, it's very, well, Chomsky maybe is less famous, and, and, and Davis, Angela Davis, I think maybe they're known more for their specific activism, but also for being academics, um, but then, you know, the, the Foucault and, and Co. Um, <laughs> Foucault, that's spelled C-O with yeah, a dot. Yeah, with the little ants, yeah, exactly. Um, we share a vision here, um, but that you know their work it seems yet yeah, very much in, in in these kinds of spaces is where they've made their mark, and you hear about how these things carry over into be, becoming so influential, and they're kind of you know up up on a pedestal, and I think that we maybe don't know we don't think about what that would look like today or how that might translate today, mm-hmm. but maybe or maybe how it translated back then. But what we don't hear as much about the way that they maybe did face resistance in certain spaces. I mean, I could see the Nazis probably didn't like Foucault. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm gonna wager that you know. Yeah. <laughs> but I had to guess on a person that they didn't like. <laughs> Yeah, well. Boy, I, was, <laughs> I, I think in the last episode I said yeah. I was reading this book called Gay Berlin. Yes. Um, and a big theme of like the last chapter of that was the Nazis not liking academics who did sex research. Yeah. They really didn't like it. Not into it. Zero not, no. out of ten. <laughs> Although there, there was this one photo in the book of the... Um, <laughs> oh, I'm sure Like the Sex Research Institute in Berlin like being raided. Or having been raided, and there's this giant pile of books, <laughs> some of which are porn, and like a couple of Nazis like reading them. Of course, it's like it's like the degenerate art exhibition, right? You know, it's yeah, it's actually probably very similar. Yeah, I think it's exactly the same. Um, yeah. So, uh, what was it? But yeah, I mean, I, I think that you you hear about all these kinds of examples of people who have done this work that is very academic, but has being become so intertwined with these movements in in issues of identity and power and um, Foucault anti-war or Davis and and um, civil rights and, and black struggle in the United States and um, yeah I think I'm not exactly sure what my point is but it's interesting to hear about someone who's doing this now and that we you see the actual struggles and fallout that people go through and that it's not maybe this kind of glamorous and like clear-cut enterprise as sometimes I think that it might seem Mm -hmm. that like A plus B, what you're doing here is going to contribute to activism. Because it seems like in in the case of Madita, Mm -hmm. that um, her work is not, that she didn't like set out to be an activist. It was more that, again, like the truth of what she's writing and what she's doing and what she's passionate about has 
kind of launched her into that more than that was like her initial thing was like she went into it because she wanted to cause social change. Maybe this isn't true though. I, I couldn't say for sure. But that was something that I was sort of curious about when I was trying. I mean, I, it's, I'm baiting you by asking, well, how did she get into, how did she get interested in this? <laughs> but uh, in actuality, like it's, not, it's just interesting to hear. Yeah, like um, it's easy maybe to see in hindsight how um, academic work might influence certain social movements, but in the day to day, in the real case of someone that you know it's mm-hmm. not so simple or just like pretty and, and exactly. gratifying and it's not like academia is logging her with lots of rewards for being yeah. such a good academic activist yeah also and what what i would say is it's fine if your academia isn't activism there's room for both things also just don't don't lie don't yeah. pretend it is. Don't, yeah, because there's this, there's definitely this really, like, uh, self-righteousness. Exactly. Um, and again, the, with the humility, like, know kind of your place, that there's limitations on what you can say, not that w- on what you can say, but what you can, like, kind of purport or, or, or presume to know about, say, a marginalized group. If you're not a member of a marginalized group, there's mm-hmm. limitations to, um, and it's really important to maintain that um, kind of attitude of humility. And also... Maybe um, even if you're someone who, like me, um, is interested in um, pursuing both things or having work that, that or producing work that overlaps with certain causes that I care about in the realm of activism, to still like keep, keep satisfaction in the work itself, as as you as you would do, as as we talk about with the hedonism versus um, humanism, like don't do everything that you do don't have it necessarily always meaning to have these lofty like external goals of how it will be received by others mm-hmm. at, towards an end of activism but also within yourself and again like staying in the authenticity of the truth of saying what you need to say for itself in a standalone product and not always needing to because I think that that's probably a common theme with many of these people that we've discussed even the famous greats like that they probably had something that they felt they needed to say and a truth that they needed to speak. Yeah, man, you can and tell Foucault is having the time of his life every time he's writing. Discipline and punish, yeah. He's yeah. loving the hell out of that, seriously. And, and and in the way that, I mean, this is all uh, porn studies, like, what do you think he was talking about? It's Let's be honest here. It's not even, we don't even have to think about it. It's true. It's true. There's um there's a, a book about his um, famous famously having orgies in um, Poland. Do you know what? I, it's what you're getting next year for Christmas. Oh, my God. Of course. Foucault is who I aspire to be. Yeah, honestly. I, all of us, really. Iconic. I'm You're a black turtleneck. I was just about to say it. Yeah. Iconic. My my black top Famously. is not a turtleneck. But we're wearing black for Foucault, That's always. True. Um, <laughs> so anyway, yeah. <laughs> this episode is dedicated to uh, Michel Foucault. <laughs> In loving memory. In loving memory. Can we play some like music right here? Like, You know how they do at the end? like some. Yes. And you know what music it's going to be? <laughs> I can't wait, actually. I really can't wait. So anyway, um, I think that's a good wrap-up. Yeah. Some thoughts about academia and activism. Feel free to let us know what you think about academia and activism in a comment left on the social media platform of your choice. And or a five-star review of this podcast. Or a five-euro donation to our Patreon. Or a higher donation. All quantities of donation gratefully received. Um, but before we go, would you like to say what we've been reading this week? What have we been reading? Um, ah, I just finished a book 
called The Lost Children's Archive by um, Valeria Luiselli. I said it the English way for our dear listeners. She's Mexican. Mm-hmm. But um, she is, I think she's becoming really big. I think that she also, um, which I just bought, um, wrote another book called Tell Me How It Ends. I think not that long ago, but she's, I think, becoming one of these like rising literary darlings of the current era age moment um but the book is really i really liked it our professor it's from my um class on border mexican u.s uh border border literature and um it's interesting because basically the book um is kind of framed in this way where it's really it's very like susan sontag like really ruminative talking it's, it's fiction but she's talking a lot about kind of like what do we do with and it's the the protagonist is like this uh documentary maker um and so she's like talking and like having this archive of sources in the book but it's very meta because it's really like the author's rumination on the same topic and a lot of the things that are referenced in the book are things that we've also read in the class so far so then we're also kind of on the same ruminative journey or moment that she's on and, and and going through in the book so it was interesting to read it in that respect. Um, our professor wasn't satisfied with kind of solutions that she offers, but then it, there's this question of, it's still a work of fiction and it's still just like a novel that happens to um, engage in some degree with these these stakes um, on specifically the, the um, so-called migrant crisis at the U.S.-Mexican border, if, you're, if it wasn't clear. Um, but at the same time, the book is also like a family drama Mm-hmm. Um, about this family who's like the marriage is falling apart and they're so it's it's both of these things and it's kind of an interesting topic that I think fits in with like what we've been saying in, in this episode and um, in terms of like how much should we expect a, a work this book to do and whether it's just enough that she's taking her kind of moment in the public eye to also like kind of force readers to think about this topic while not necessarily needing to offer solutions or purporting to have the answer of what we should do about the migrant crisis or like what regular people should do to engage with it but rather that it's just a good book on its own and I think yeah as I say I think this is uh actually fits well with this conversation that we've been having that does fit well so excellent well segues so yeah uh it's a good book I'd recommend it it's pretty fast read What's it called again? Um, the Lost Children Archive. And yeah, it's another one thing I would say that's really cool about this book is that I never, I think part of reading and engaging with literature is that you have to develop the skill to kind of implant yourself in a whole other context, a whole other set of references, a whole other moment in time that's probably, most likely of everything that's written, not your own moment in time and not your own context, exactly. Um, and that's one of the things that I think it makes reading so enriching because you learn so much that way. But this book is like so extremely current. It was like, I actually read something that was made for like exactly my kind of, I don't know, whoever I am, like cohort of, of whatever. <laughs> um, but it was, just, it was really interesting. I never read something that was so vivid and so current and so accessible in that way. That's also a work of fiction. And I thought that was, it was a cool experience. Wonderful. So that's my, my, uh, my review of Lost Children Archive. I've also been reading or have recently finished reading a book that uh, is, I am told, very topical and I am told very relevant to social issues, um, so much so that it won the Booker Prize this past year. <laughs> does it all come full circle? It all does come full circle. Um, and this book is 
The Testaments by Canada's one and only significant author, Margaret Atwood. There she is. Um, fun fact, this is only the second Margaret Atwood book I've ever read. Do you think she's overrated? You know, it's hard to say. Um, Canada doesn't have any other significant authors. And Alice Munro. I have some Alice Munro right over there. You know what we say in Canada about Alice Munro? What do you say? We... She won the Nobel Prize because they said, oh, give it to that Canadian lady author. I think she's got an A and an M in her name. <laughs> no, they really say that? Is that a classic Canadian saying? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Absolutely. That's what we go around. It's like our version of hello. It's like how you know when it's one of your own. Yeah. You, there are other good Canadian authors, but there aren't other significant Canadian mm. authors. Um. I, I know some people who think Margaret Atwood is very overrated, and I know some people who really, really love her. I've read a decent amount. I read um, uh, Cat's Eye. Do you know this one? I think that's what it's called. No. Um, I read that in high school. I really liked it. And then that obviously just Handmaid's Tale, but I really like this other this other other one by her. Yeah. Are you with that? I've, I think I've read like not her best work because mm-hmm. I've read The Testaments and I also read Hagseed, which was her. Oh yeah. Her adaptation of The Tempest for this. Other. Classy. For this other class with uh, Sabina Schulting. Yeah. Um, and my evaluation of the Testaments was that it was an excellent piece of fanfiction. Mm. You love some good fanfic. I do love some good fanfic. Um, <laughs> Famously. I, I'm sure I would have gotten a lot more out of it if I was familiar with The Handmaid's Tale, which I am only in the loosest cultural osmosis context. I love that about you. <laughs> <laughs> You're really um, from another century. Really, yes. <laughs> but I think I think the main problem that I had with The Handmaid's Tale, or with The Testaments, first off, I kept calling it The Handmaid's Tale. <laughs> extremely um, confusing for everybody in class. Extremely confusing. <laughs> I think the main problem I had with it is that it assumes fairly enough that you've read The Handmaid's Tale and also seen the show. Mm. And so it skips a lot of world building. And so there were a lot of things where I thought... That happened awfully fast. Yeah, like, was I supposed to? Yeah, and that's not, that doesn't sound like really good, like, robust literature. I mean, it's a sequel, it's so fanfic. it is fanfic. I, I think you can't evaluate a sequel fairly without no. having read the first one. That's true. It's, you know, it's so it's unfair of me to be mean to the testaments did she read uh or did she write oryx and crate mm-hmm. this this oh yeah i've yeah. actually read a lot of her i've actually read a lot of margaret atwood anyway see she's a significant canadian yeah. author i'm i am technically one quarter canadian so <laughs> i'm from a, a city that's very close to the canadian border <laughs> that's kind of like being canadian. so i'm like not that yeah yes yeah. pretty can... i'm like Fairly Canadian for not being technically Canadian. You can be an honorary Canadian. I'll allow it. I'm uh, in charge yeah. of this. If she's in charge of this. I've read some. I've read a substantial amount of Margaret Atwood. That has to count towards the points for. I think probably you know, when they do that like citizenship test. Yeah, they're like and... how much Margaret Atwood. Alice Monroe gets like point three fifths of the po- number of points. Like <laughs> <laughs> it's like a schematic. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And then if you can name any other Canadian author, it's like, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's like the real, you bypass like the rest of the test. Yeah. Like, if you can just do that one thing. Now there's Ellen Montgomery, I guess. No, uh, Anne with an E. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Right, right, right. So maybe some people know her now. Right. But probably not. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not some people. Here. That's okay. <laughs> all right. Well, that's all I had to say. That's about. all we have to say. 
This was this was has been fun. This was fun. I feel like this is classic code energy. Classic code energy. Um, we'll see you next time. We'll you'll hear us next time. We will not see you. You will not, not see us. I we won't hear you. But you could leave a comment <laughs> on the social media platform of your choice. Donate to our Patreon. And or leave us a very highly rated review on your podcast listening platform. Amen. <laughs>